Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. So I remember a seminary prof telling me that um, Christians are known for their plasticity. And I think Bono here was actually tapping into to some of that struggle. And he, he was talking about it in the terms of being an artist. But I think it's important to learn in terms of being a, an authentic Christian that we can lean into the honesty of the struggle, of life, of the ups and downs, rather than just trying to stay in this place of orientation that we talked about last week, where everything's good and we, we know the truth and we, we know the way, we have the life, but we, we kind of use that to mask or hide some of the deeper, raw feelings. So tonight we're continuing our continuing our series of Summer in the Psalms and digging into the rawness and the authenticity that's offered in the pages of Scripture and what that teaches us about how we too can pray and talk to God. So we've been approaching the Psalms from the perspective of orientation, of disorientation, which we'll look at tonight, and then in the future we'll be looking at reorientation, new orientation. Now this one excites me and I started getting a little carried away last week with it because this is what I relate to the most. Uh, I grew up in a tradition that it was very much emphasized to not uh, dwell on or focus on negative emotions. And you could look to God is good, God is loving, he's saved you, what's there to be sad about? And I never knew what to do with the feelings that I had within me that were troubling and the doubts that I had and the questions that I had. And if I did bring them up, then they were quickly shut down and I was reminded of this place of orientation. But what I love about disorientation and kind of getting to peel the layers back is this reflects my own lived reality. It it reflects the questions and the doubts and just the the question marks around faith, around life, around God, and his presence and his felt absence, and his nearness and his farness. And because part of the journey that I believe we can all relate to is kind of this question of where's God in the midst of our suffering? Um, I know uh, my, my family, we're really good at putting on the, the smiles and the laughter and I uh, was talking to someone who was connected with Don Brown's funeral home just last night, and the, the image I have of that place is laughter. It's a funeral home, but every time we would have a relative who had passed and we were burying, we would go there for visitation, and you would know which one was the, the Blacks, my mom's family, or the Bernie's room, because it was filled with laughter. But I always had this nagging question of, okay, where, where's God in the suffering? Where, where, where's the space to grieve and to hurt and to just even ask some of the questions? So I've had a few instances throughout my life of just these times where it felt like God was absent, uh, times of just disorientation where things were flipped upside down. Uh, The the one that I talk about most is probably the time that um, a young guy from our church, he had just gotten married to his wife on Thanksgiving, and um, two weeks later was killed in a workplace accident. 
that same week, Amanda lost her grandma, and it started bringing back all these memories of my own grandparents that I hadn't grieved their loss over. And I don't think it's always just even death, though, that makes us question things. I, I know I'm honest about kids, like, kids, they rocked me. Part of it was Amanda and I had five years married in British Columbia. Landon was born out there. And then suddenly, um, this was actually the conversation when we went into our counselor's office because I met up with a marriage and family therapist. And she's like, so what's going on? And I'm like, well, we're expecting, we're moving. I've quit my job. I'm starting a degree. I have no idea what we're going to do for work after this. And she didn't know where to begin with us. I didn't know where to begin. And it was just kind of this complete life change and loss of friendships and loss of freedom. As I often explain, kids make me feel like I'm under house arrest and I can't leave after seven o'clock at night. And so it's not always death that we're talking about for disorientation and loss, but just anything that, that really disrupts our normal rhythms. And then you kind of go one day from this place of orientation, knowing where things are, to then suddenly being flipped upside down and being like, can life just be, go on pause? Like that time that, uh, that uh, we lost the young guy from our church and Amanda's grandma, and everything was happening just very quick and close to one another. And I remember just getting emails and calls, and when's this report coming in, and when are you going to do this, and when's this event And I just wanted to yell at people, like, just stop, stop asking me things. Like, I'm just trying to make sense of where I was yesterday to where I'm going to be this evening. How could this happen? And how could God let this happen? And where is God? Am I still close to him? Is he still close to me? And I would go through these various emotions of sadness, which would then often come out in anger for me. And I would try and stuff it down, but it would just come out later. Who knows what our landlords who lived above us in our basement suite must have thought when those outbursts did come out. But within days, I lost my handle on things. I began unraveling, and I began losing my perspective on God. I wasn't sure where he fit into, any, into it anymore. So long story short, I began trying to control things. I thought, okay, I just have to do this, and I have to overcome this. I have to white-knuckle it, and I'm going to get myself out of this. I'm strong enough. I'll be devoted enough. I'll be good enough to do it on my own. And before long, I was carrying these heavy burdens, and I just felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders. And then I was reminded of the verse, Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, where Jesus says, For those of you who are weary, heavy burdened, just burned out on religion, come to me, find rest. And I think many of us are weary. I think many of us carry heavy burdens. And we always think, well, if I just get away on vacation, that will solve all. If we just get a night away from the kids, that will solve all. If we just earn a little bit more. But what does it look like to come to Jesus and find rest. And perhaps you've experienced 
your own disorientation. Actually, I'm almost certain that you've experienced your own disorientation. Perhaps divorce of your parents, of yourself. Suddenly, this happily ever after that you dreamed of is ripped away. The loss of a job or the death of a relative or close friend. So how do we respond to a sense of God's abandonment? That's kind of what I'm wanting to draw out tonight. And we're going to be looking at Psalm 6. It's just a short psalm. It's six verses long. But what I love about these verses we're going to read is they plumb the depths of near despair. So Psalm 6, starting in verse 1, it's a psalm that's attributed to David, and he cries out, How long will you forget me, Lord? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I be left to my own wits, agony filling my heart daily? How long will my enemy keep defeating me? Look at me, answer me, Lord my God, restore sight to my eyes. Otherwise, I'll sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I won. My foes will rejoice over my downfall. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. Yes, I will sing to the Lord because he has been good to me. Now, I want to spend some time on those first four verses before this sudden unexpected twist of this confession of trust and confidence. Because I love the rawness of just this how long. Like, it's this unknown, and I'm sure we've all been there. Like, how long is this going to take? How long until I get an answer? Just looking over at you, Jacqueline, I just remember Dave. We're praying for him to get a job, and we're thinking, how long is this going to take? And the day before he loses his unemployment, he gets a job. Or we've been praying for Deb. And Deb found housing just this past week, and she's been asking the same question, how long? It's a question that gets asked nearly 20 times in the Psalms, and it's usually in connection with lament. And what I love about it is that questioning God is actually an ancient tradition within Israel. And you see it from the very beginning of Scripture. You see it in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel, and God is showing concern for Abel and Cain kind of responds by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Kind of pushing back against God. And Abraham, who, who was first Abram, responds to God by saying, what can you give me since I remain childless? God's saying, trust me. Don't fear. Be confident. And he's like, what can you give me? I'm childless. And then the greatest example of kind of this type of questioner outside of the Psalms is Job, whose questions begin in chapter 3, and God doesn't show up until chapter 38. You have 35 chapters of this guy just suffering and questioning things and doubting and wondering what's going on, trying to make sense of it. And what I love that the, the questions aren't these requests for simple knowledge. Rather, they express these deep human doubts suspicions. They, they ex- express this lack of trust in the character and activity of God in their lives. God's not acting how they want him to act. God's not acting how they expect him to act. But if you're anything like me, when you hear these questions and when you kind of think about the context of someone questioning God, you might feel uncomfortable with it. Because 
many people, if not most people in our day, have never been told that it's okay. As Christians, we often get the signal from others that if we doubt or if we struggle in some way with the Bible, then our faith is weak. So then what happens is our goal starts to become about the ease of stress, somehow by praying more, going for, to church more. But one thing we see in the Bible is how often people's trust in God was shaken. And not because they were weak, but because life just happens. So I'm here tonight to tell you, to remind you, to give you permission that it's okay not to be okay. How long, oh God? I'm sure many of us can relate to the sense of God's abandonment. Like he's withdrawn himself. That you had this this nearness, this closeness, and then suddenly it's gone. And maybe at the very least, he's at least feels like he's hidden himself from you. But all of this adds to the weightiness, this sense of fear of abandonment. And this sense, this weight of this fear, it has inward emotional effects. And you see that kind of coming out in the psalm here. Because it leads him to wrestling with, with his inner thoughts. How, how long am I left to my own wits? When you begin to experience disorientation and this loss of direction, you, you start pulling away from people because you're trying to get your, your own head around what's going on. It, or you, you just don't want to actually have to relive some of the stuff what's going on or explain it, or you just can't make sense of it. But the more you pull away, the more isolated you actually become. And then before long, you're battling your own inner thoughts, your own inner demons. And this is what the psalmist is talking about. How long will I be left to my own wits? Agony is filling my heart. But I believe in these verses, there's also good news. Because I believe these verses show us that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to lay it all out because it's about continuing the conversation. Even though it might feel one-sided, I believe that as we're crying out to God, as we're laying it all out, it's actually affirming the relationship. I still remember several moments that I've had of confessing sins and wrongdoings and actions. And, and it's a terrifying experience. I think the first time I ever got caught, I was, stole bubble gum from a, a store and, and uh, my dad didn't want to buy it for me, and I grabbed it, ran out, put it in my pillowcase. We were on a road trip, and, and uh, my brother and I then got into a pillow fight a few minutes down the road, and I clobbered him over the head with a wad of bubble gum and had to go back and confess, I, I, I took this from you. And I, I had some instances with a pastor where I, I'm like, man, I've messed up big time. And each time I kept thinking like, man, like, I'm going to pay for this. I, I'm going to be rejected. People are going to want to distance themselves from me just out of embarrassment, the stupid decisions I made. But there's the one moment that I'll never forget, that this one pastor, after I had laid it all out, and I'm just hanging my head in shame, he just hugs me. And he says, Kev, I see God working in your life. I see God working in your heart. And you know what? I see you actually have a desire 
to move closer to him. Otherwise, why would you be confessing? Why would you be wrestling with this? I'll never forget that demonstration of grace and love because I think the most dangerous place we can get to is just becoming apathetic, like just not caring. Um, the Revelation, where it talks about being hot or cold, like at least you can have a conversation if someone's in one of those camps. But if you're in the middle where you just don't care, I think that's the, the most difficult place and dangerous place we can arrive at. So the most important thing we can do in our relationship with God is to continue the conversation, lay it out. So David continues on in verses 3 and 4. He says, look at me, answer me, Lord my God, restore sight to my eyes. Otherwise, I'll sleep the sleep of death. My enemy will say, I won. My foes will rejoice over my downfall. He's continuing to wrestle with these inner thoughts, and he's laying it all out. He's begging for divine intervention. And he, start, he starts kind of, you see it kind of snowballing and escalating. That if God doesn't intercede, if he doesn't receive this divine intervention, all he can picture is rapid decline, defeat, and death. That he, he can't even imagine another way out. He's wrestling with this tension that's been created as his life has shifted from a place of orientation to disorientation. He once felt near to God, and now he feels so far from God. And as I, I was thinking about this, the, the closest thing that came to mind, it's a silly illustration, but I was thinking about tech, our technological advancement with phones. I still remember some of my kids, my friends growing up as kids because of the pattern, because I had to type in their phone number manually. And it was the seven digits, and I won't say it now because, I, I don't know, I don't want anyone trying to call it, but... Uh, I can picture calling them up, and I'd call them and see if they wanted to play and hang out that day or go to the park. And if they didn't pick up, just thought, okay, they're busy, not a problem. Then we had the advancement of voicemail and caller ID. So then suddenly you start thinking to yourself, and you get in your head that, okay, they haven't called me back. They know they called, or that I called. I've left a message. Maybe they're away. Maybe they've just been out of town for a bit. But then you get cell phones, and suddenly you're like, why are you ignoring me? Especially with the cell phone, if you have the red message, the red receipt on your text, and it's like, message, red. And it's like, why didn't they respond to the text message? Or today I was trying to get through to Amanda, and I'm like emergency alerting her phone, and I'm like, ah! And where this somehow connects in my brain is that when we're accustomed to that sense of nearness, when, when we're used to being able to call someone on the cell phone and suddenly it's not there, they're not picking up. I believe it's, it's a similar sensation to when we enter into our relationship with Christ and we have this sense of nearness and closeness and love and appreciation and we're on these mountaintop experiences and then suddenly our life gets flipped upside down and it's like okay God why are you ignoring me you're supposed to be near to me I know you've read the message I know you've got the voicemail seen the caller ID why are you ignoring me and there's an imagery here that's often used throughout scripture and that's of God's face 
Verse one says, how long will you hide your face from me? And then here David cries out, look at me. In other words, he's saying, turn your face toward me. But the good news here is that even though God might feel distant, he's not far off, nor is his love fading. His love is in fact everlasting. There's nothing that can separate us from it. He's always with us. He promises to never forsake us. So when we can't sense his closeness or when we don't experience that temporary deliverance, the important thing to remember is that we're not chasing the forgiveness of sins or the love of God because we have all of this already in Jesus. Rather, what we're doing, what David's doing here is that he's seeking to restore the intimacy with God. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Seek the Lord in his strength. strength. Seek his face continually. Or another way of saying that is seek his presence continually. That's what the Psalms help us do. They help us seek out that intimacy with God by even laying it all bare and being honest with our frustrations and our fears and doubts. I saw a great quote the other day by author Simon Sinek, who writes the book Start With Why, and he wrote, the future is only scary if we try to avoid it. The experience and sense of God's abandonment, it's real, it's painful, but it's rightfully brought to God in laments and questions. The, the other psalm, I don't have a quote for it, but um, Psalm 22 is actually the psalm that Jesus quotes as he's dying on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The sense of God's abandonment, it's painful. But you know what? God's not offended by our honest questions. He's not even offended by our heated complaints. Both confirm our desire for a relationship with him. And this professor I had at McMaster Divinity College, he told me while I was going through another season of disorientation, go to the darkest corner of the depths of your soul and discover that Jesus is already there. It's a tough thing to do. It's a tough thing to accept. But when you can actually take some time and go to those places that you haven't told anyone about. You haven't told your spouse about, your best friend about. It's just been there in your mind and you've been shoving it away. When you can go there and lay that out and just bear it all before God and realize that he's already there saying, I know, and I love you. <sighs> That's so freeing. There's nothing we can hide from him. There's nothing we can do for him to stop loving us. It's okay to not be okay because God meets you where you are. That line has just been, been stuck in my head all week as I've been preparing for this. Is it's okay to not be okay. God meets you where you are. Because when we realize that, we can move forward in trust and confidence and hope. 
And I think that's what happens suddenly here for David in verses 5 and 6. Because then suddenly you have this unexpected twist. And he says, but I've trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I'll sing to the Lord because he's been good to me. It's this sudden confidence and trust. And it's not that he's just trying to fake it till he makes it. It's that he's laying his soul bare before God and realizing God's faithfulness and his goodness. He allows himself to be brutally honest and then is reminded of his love, of his goodness, of his mercy. That's another word for when it says, I'll sing, my heart will rejoice in your salvation. It's my heart will rejoice in your mercy. Because sometimes we need to articulate the crap that's going on inside of us and just air it out in order to be reminded of the good so that we can just kind of bring it up and let it go. Just name it for what it is. Don't be afraid to be honest before God. Christian author and professor Peter Enns, he writes a book called um, The Bible Told Me So, How Defending Scripture Has Made Us Unable to Read It. He has a great line in that book that says, in the spiritual life, the opposite of fear is not courage. It's trust. I love that. Because honest, honestly, we, we get these, these times where it's like, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. And it's like, you, you white knuckle it, you kind of bolster yourself up and you're like, I'll be strong and courageous. But it's not just about being courageous. It's actually about placing our trust in God and in Jesus. And that is what gives us our confidence to be strong and courageous. It's about trusting in God. It's about placing our trust in Jesus. And when we know in whom we've placed our trust, then we're filled with that courage. I just keep thinking about all the instances in the Bible too where you hear, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. It's not just try not to be afraid. It's this act of you can trust the message. and You can trust the person of Jesus. And that's why the psalmist cries out, I've trusted in you. I've trusted in your faithfulness. So how do we regain a sense of God's presence? What does this look like for us moving forward? Let me say again that it's okay to not be okay. Struggling doesn't mean you're failing. It means you're learning. It means you're growing. It means that you're now having to take the truths of Scripture and understand them within a different context of life. It can be hard but it's also temporary. Disorientation, it's a season. It can be a painful season, but it's not permanent. It's not where we stay. It's where we learn. It's where we grow and where we move on from. And hopefully with this better understanding and appreciation for Jesus, who meets us right where we are. So I want to offer five steps that will help us regain a sense of God's presence in the midst of disorientation. And I've adapted some of these from a pastor, Kerry Newhoff, and uh, it was a book that I was reading through, and he gives these steps for burnout, and I've taken a few of them because I thought it applied for disorientation here. But the first one is let go of fear. And what I mean by that is One of the most common obstacles for Christians 
I believe, is fear. We, we wrestle with a fear of getting it right. Did we get the Bible right? Have we made our decisions right? Are we acting it outright? And there's this, this real black and white that we want to make of it. But when we allow fear to have control, we miss out on the beauty of the relationship with Jesus. We miss out on the beauty of life. I'm not sure how many of you saw or remember the movie Life is Beautiful, a 1997 movie, where this dad and his son uh, are a Jewish family and they, they get taken to a Nazi concentration camp. And the dad kind of work, concocts this whole elaborate scheme to convince his son that they actually just have to overcome some of these hardships in order to win a greater prize. And he kind of gets everyone around the room to, to buy into this story. And even to the point, even to the point this guy's marching off to his own death. He's still making it this laughable, happy moment. And again, it's not this fake it till you make it. It's because he wants his son to know that life is beautiful. Oh man, didn't expect that. <laughs> Let's lean into the beauty. The second step is to tell someone and this is hard and we resist it because of our pride. We don't want to keep our struggles to ourselves. Or what to, this is hard and we all resist because of pride, but don't keep your struggles to yourself. I was going to say we want to keep them to ourselves. It's tough, but telling someone is the first step toward wellness. I actually saw another Facebook thing. Man, that news feed's always filled with things, but it says, it has the I in illness. And it says, when we go from I to we, it shifts from illness to wellness. And I thought, wow, I know it's just semantics, but it's this whole idea of just taking the step of telling someone else because then it provides accountability and it actually makes you have to begin to accept what you're going through. And also, depending on your situation, don't be afraid to seek help if, if necessary from properly trained professionals, including Christian counselors. And I emphasize Christian counselors because I believe if we remove Jesus from the solution, we, we're removing the main thing. But tell someone. Build a group around you. And then third step is keep leaning into God. And I intentionally put this one third and not first because sometimes when we're in a season of disorientation and things are kind of all out of whack, it's hard to kind of understand our emotions and we feel this sense of numbness and we likely won't feel that God is there for us. But remember, just because God seems silent doesn't mean he's absent. And then the second reason that I put this here kind of carries on is because the more spiritual you are, 
the more you've grown up in church, the more you've been around the church, the, the more you've been involved, the more tempted you'll be to think that you and God can handle this privately. But God works through people. Sometimes the most tangible form of God's love is the love you receive from people who love God. So keep leaning into God. Fourth, grieve your losses. I believe that almost all seasons of disorientation begin with loss. Think about how much loss is involved in life. I know I mentioned some of these at the beginning, but your best friend moves to another city. A much-loved relative dies. Your parents filed for divorce after many years. Your car that was supposed to last for another year gets dragged off to the junkyard. It can be anything. Your spouse contracts a chronic illness. Just fill in the blank. Most of us pretend like these things don't hurt, but they actually do. If we don't grieve our losses during our recovery, then we're missing tremendous opportunities to put the past behind us. I've mentioned before, if we don't drag these things up, if we don't name them, they'll come out in ugly ways in the future. And last but not least, reopen your heart. When we go through these difficult seasons, we can lose our passion, we can become emotionally numb, we can become cynical, and chances are your heart has closed significantly to avoid any more pain, any more hurt. One thing that I've learned over the years too is when we try and numb certain emotions, we can't pick and choose what we're numbing. And what I mean by that is oftentimes there will be pain. And some people might go to pornography, alcohol, different substances, shopping, whatever it might be. And we try and numb a specific targeted pain. But when we do that, we can't pick and choose what we're numbing. If you're numbing the negative emotions, you're also numbing the positive emotions. And that's why I feel these other steps we need to take seriously too and get properly treated, have a support system around us. Because that's not how we're meant to deal with our pain. But in reopening your heart, I believe this is vital. Because rather than closing yourself off, rather than trying to numb it through different ways, I believe we need one another. And as we open ourselves up, we become vulnerable again to being hurt. But I believe the most wonderful thing we discover is that people are trustworthy. And more than that, God is always trustworthy. So I just want to wrap up by asking a simple question that a friend reminded me of the other day. And it's just, what if. And I love this question because it opens up the possibility of something more, something different. It generates options. It expands our thinking. So 
So I began praying about what if, what if we as a church truly allowed people to not be okay? What if we as a church became a place where, where everyone is known and not just where we know everybody, but where you're truly known in this community? What if we as a church became a beacon of hope in our community? What if we as a church were recognized as a safe place or a safe resource in our community that anybody and everybody could come to for hope and for healing? Can you imagine the community that would take shape if we lived as a church that allowed that kind of safe space to exist within our midst? It scares the heck out of me, I'll be honest, because it would be messy, it would be exciting, it would be scary, just what if? But I think what excites me is that's what our community needs. Our community needs hope. It needs healing. It needs to know that it's okay to not be okay because God meets us where we are. So wherever you're at tonight, cry out to God. Let him hear it. Don't hold back. Share your what ifs with him. Find a trusted friend, share your struggles, surround yourself with community, grieve your losses, reopen your heart, but know that you're not alone. Keep leaning into God. And if you can muster up enough strength, repeat the words of the psalmist who concludes, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me.